Thank you for joining the Leader Generation Podcast, where B2B and B2B2C marketers can explore new technology and strategies to effectively fill their sales pipeline and contribute to company growth. Our host today is Tessa Bird, the Chief Technology Officer at Tenlo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Leader Generation brought to you by Tenlo Radio. I'm your host, Tessa Berg, and today I'm joined by Will Salcido, the founder and CEO of Bedrock Analytics. Our conversation today is going to center around the changing landscape of CPG. Will, thanks so much for being our guest. We're excited to have you. Of course. Thanks for having me. So you have a lot of experience in this industry. Tell me a little bit about where have you been and what types of challenges have you seen across the CPG industry up until this point? Sure. Uh, big question. I'll, I'll start with where I've been, which is, uh, so my background is in analytics, RAN management, a little bit of sales. So my background started with Novartis, uh, actually Nestle, uh, right out of college. And then I joined Novartis on the pharmaceutical side, uh, analyzing retail data. And Nestle being one of the largest companies, Novartis, a fairly large pharmaceutical company. I was then recruited out to be the first analytical hire at Ghirardelli Chocolate uh, in California. And there I built out a department of, of analysts uh, and we had a lot of success with really telling stories with data. And it was something new to the company. And, uh, you know, it was more of an adaptation to having about 18 salespeople and it was only me for a long while. So I had to figure out, well, how can I help them be analytical if they don't have, let's say, the tools in place. So I ended up kind of creating a series of stories that they could tell over and over again that brought data in, in a narrative form. Uh, and then eventually I helped automate that to a degree. And we were able to win category captaincies at, at major retailers like Target and Meyer, and other places. Uh, and then after that, I went overseas for a year to the parent company of Ghirardelli, a company called Lint out of Switzerland. So from there, I went to 11 different countries and I did the same thing over and over again in a year. So I was in about a month in every country in Europe. And I, I got to do the same thing, build systems, interview the CEO, VP sales, VP marketing, and then train the salespeople on how to use a tool that I had built and also tell these stories with data. And then came back and I was in a brand management role then at Ghirardelli. And I really started thinking about just the problem that I had seen over and over again, you know, sp you know, specifically in 11 countries, just back to back, it's a pretty unique experience to be able to see 11 different companies, not just countries, but even though it's the same company, they all have different cultures. And I saw how some struggled with data and others, you know, were pretty good at it. And by the time I got back, I just said, hey, this is a bigger problem than what one company is trying to solve with me. So I decided to leave Ghirardelli and start a company. So a little known fact is I always say Fidelity funded Bedrock because I used half of my 401k. I took oh my gosh. It. Yeah, crazy. I mean, we'll see if it works. <laughs> my wife is like, that's still crazy, but it's working out. So it's good. And yeah, so I took half of my 401k and I started the company. I funded it on my own in the beginning. And I had, you know, I had a co-founder at the time and just built the company out and then eventually raised capital around it. I really like your journey right from the start. You started in data and then you made the leap into food. One thing that I think is interesting, or I want to hear more about, how did you recognize the opportunity that storytelling from data could mm -hmm. increase sales? That feels like a big leap, especially when we think about sales being such a relationship-driven space. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, it wasn't like that at Nestle. Nestle was just straight facts, like just 
just the numbers, Novartis similar. Ghirardelli was different. Ghirardelli had a, it was a very tight knit culture and everyone you know, at the company. And the way that the company sold was really about the story of Ghirardelli, the chocolate, the history, you know, San Francisco. It was all about the, the art of you know, chocolate making and, and you know, the impact that it had on the shelf, how our consumers were different. You know, I was pretty good at, at using data to sell. So I was invited to about 150 sales calls with retail buyers. You know? So it was a salesperson and then it was me and I would tell the facts. Salesperson's talking about the product and, and marketing programs and all these things. So I got to see 150 sales calls all you know back to back, almost all retailers I went on. So I noticed in the beginning, I tried the Nestle playbook, which is just go with the data. It didn't feel right next to a story around the product and the brand. So then I started thinking like, well, what if my part is more like a story around the data? And that seemed to fit better. You know, it was only me for a while on the analytics side. So the, the 18 salespeople ended up depending on me for a lot of that work. So they would invite me because I would do that, you know, that data set. So like, how could I make their job a little easier? And also how could they take over what I do? Because I can't be going on every sales call forever. You know, they had maybe two or three customers. I had somehow all of them. So, yeah. so if I could make, help them kind of do what they're doing already with a little bit of data, they were actually able to take it over and not depend on me to do it. So it was both adaptation and I, you know, I also didn't want to have to do everything. A lot of our clients really rely on like trends and insights as a way to help show that their products solve big challenges and big opportunities. What kind of data were you including in your storytelling to complement what the sales team was talking about? I always think about the audience, right? Who is the audience for whatever message we're trying to deliver? And I'm sure in your, you know, your audience today, you know, they have their own data sets. But the end audience for us was always a retail buyer, right? The decision maker was whether or not they're going to take your product and merchandise it on their shelves for, you know, six months, a year, two years, you know, however long it has success. And there are certain things that they wanted to know. I, they're trying to figure out, well, if I have, let's say it's the buyer for, you know, premium chocolate, let's stick with Ghirardelli for now. Premium chocolate, I have, you know, they as a buyer have either four feet to maybe 12 feet of space dedicated to premium chocolate that real estate is very valuable, right? So each inch, basically a bar, a chocolate bar is three inches wide, you know, vertical, right? So three inches wide. They have to decide, what do I do with these slots that I have, right? I could decide to go, you know, 50% Hershey and, and then the rest, or I can, I can bring kind of regional favorites or premium, non-premium, whatever that might be. So we have to convince them that giving us, you know, X amount of inches is a good use of real estate for X amount of time. And the way you do that, is that you show them that your brand has success at other places that are similar to their retailer. That's a really simple one uh, because it's, you know, you, they all tend to have FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Mm. Everybody does. It's just human nature. So you tell them, hey, people that are like you, which are other retailers, are doing this already. And when we are there, we do really well for them. That's one way. If you don't have that story, then you say, well, we have a specific consumer group that really likes us, right? A specific group that this retailer is also trying to court. It might be young parents. It might be, you know, singles, or it might be dual income households, whatever that might be. If you can show that, and you need for that is demographic data, right? You need to know, well, who is your consumer? Who is buying your product? Uh, back in the day, there wasn't much direct to consumer data because it was, you know, it was 10 years ago. Uh, now, most brands are selling on Shopify and other places. So you have some consumer information, demographic information, just bring that in. Uh, a lot of the times, even though you might be a small brand, you have a consumer group that really likes your brand. Uh, and if 
they're looking for it. And if it's not in that store, they might go somewhere else. So that's another way to go, which is we have a specific consumer group that really likes us. There's some other ones, but I'll save that for a little later. Those are more called the, you know, the dark arts. When you don't have a good story, what do you do? And that's a little more complicated. Okay. <laughs> so for the simple, mm -hmm. accessible storylines, showing past success, showing you have a specific consumer group, and really being able to keep that cart purchase there within the store. Correct. How does this sort of help retailer buyers do their job and compare CPG products? They're presented with, you know, from 40 to 100 different pitches, right? For a category. A, a retail buyer, by the way, reviews a category in about a two-week period, once or twice a year. They allow then all new item vendors to come in and and existing vendors to pitch for the real estate. And then they decide what's gonna go on those, you know, the four feet of space or whatever they have. So how they decide is uniqueness. Uh, they all have different requirements. Some, some are, you know, uniqueness, some are really weight more on the margin. So, you know, they'll go with the highest margin products. Some are gonna go with, well, who's gonna, who's gonna turn the fastest? That's high velocity items. It all depends on what, one, the retail strategy is, and also what your what the category strategy is within retail. So for instance, like diapers, typically a loss leader, which means it's going to be the lowest priced products. They're not going to make a lot of money, but they bring families in. And those families tend to buy other things that are valuable at a higher margin. So if you're in the diaper category, margins are going to be low. It's going to be all about high turns, so high velocity items, right? Other categories like premium chocolate, you're not going to sell a lot of them, but you're going to make more money per unit. You kind of have to know what that strategy is for the category and then your product should fit into that. The, the one thing that, by the way, trumps all like, you know, the best thing is high, having high velocities. Like it's hard to get away from that. Everybody wants high velocities. Yes. I was just going to say when I was at American Greetings, I remember getting trained in uh, merchandising and mm -hmm. I'm not able to walk down the aisle of Target the same way, you know, yeah. just like looking at all the real estate and trying to guess at what was the retailer category strategy here? How and why did this group get the end caps? Is there a way for small and mid-tier CPG companies today to get that type of insight? Like what are the retailers really focused on, you know, for this year or for the next couple of years? The insight around getting an end cap or just general insights? Just general insight around like, what is the strategy? What, what are they focusing on so that I can like show uh, that yeah. I deserve this very valuable real estate? Yeah, you know, some retailers are really good about sharing it. For instance, Target will tell you exactly what the focus of the category is, a strategy. They share all sorts of documents with you, typically, as a vendor. Other retailers don't. The best thing to do is just ask, like, hey, what's the role of the category within the aisle? Or another way to ask that, because that's so personal, uh, is actually be a little more personal, which is like, hey, what would make your job easier? Like, right, as a vendor, what could I do to make your job easier so that you shine within with the aisle, you know, department, division head, whatever that might be. Because they all, a category, let's say it's pickles, will reside under the, the buyer for condiments, right? And that is then might be dry goods or canned goods, depends, I'm not sure where, where it rolls into. So they all have, you know, bosses, right, that they have to report into and they have to, there are certain things that they're measured against. It's always best to ask that, right? What is What are your incentives? Mm -hmm. it, might be, it, it might not be high velocity. It might be high margin. And you're like, wow, like maybe we need to figure out what we can do to, to maybe come up with a family size, right? That has a higher margin, something, right? To, to kind of satisfy that. So there are a lot of layers to getting on the shelf, 
you first have to stay true to your product and brand and be aligned with what your customer wants. And then you also need to be able to tell a broader story of how that product and brand has performed in the past, how its customer performs at that specific retailer. And then, as you just brought up, it's very effective to be personally concerned or invested in what is going to make your buyer successful at their place of business. Correct. I feel like those are really universal and would always stand the test of time. Has anything that's happened in 2020, 2021, uh, especially with a lot of very big mergers and acquisitions, changed on what sellers need to do to get into retail? So change in 2020, 2021? I can't think of anything. No. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so much has happened. Yeah. <laughs> I should have just ended it there. That would be funny. Yeah, what you that would have been great. I would have loved it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no so, so a lot of change. What's happened, right? So we've had a pandemic. We've had a lot of, there's been the great resignation, right? This could go on forever if I list all the changes, but major changes like that, inflation, all sorts of things. So supply chain issues, right? Now it's getting scary. Yes. So all these things are happening and retail buyers are trying to figure out, well, one, are, are consumers the same as they were two years ago, right? And it doesn't seem like they are. No one really is, right? Everyone's different. So I think what's happening, and this is all happening right now, right, is they're trying to figure out, well, what are the new strategies? Like, how do we get consumers to buy what we would like them to buy at our stores? Are we even merchandising what they want? Are they coming into the stores like they were before? Because, you know, a lot of folks switch to online, you know, purchases. That is completely, that, that brings in a ton of new dynamics uh, where, you know, the things that we can control. I mean, I'm act, you know, speaking, we being you know, a merchandiser in this right now is you don't control the real estate as much in a digital world, right? It's very easy to switch to say, well, let me go to walmart.com or let me go to Instacart, let me go here, let me go Safeway.com or Kroger, very, very, very easily. Versus when you're in a store, right? It's very inconvenient to go 15 minutes to another store if they don't have what you want. So all, all of those things are kind of coming into play. That has changed, right, the consumer. And I think what retailers are really looking for are brands that can bring an updated perspective on the consumer and back it up with, you know, they have to back it up with data because everyone's really hungry for that to understand, well, what, like, do you know what happened? And then what are we doing to address consumer needs, right? Do you even know your consumer as a brand? How well do you know them? So that's really important. I think, you know, back you know, years ago, it didn't really matter so much how much influence you had directly with consumers, with shoppers. And now it does because you, you can bring shoppers to a stop and shop or a Kroger, as long as you have a platform. Uh, to do that. So that's important. Pricing, it seems to be right now a little less important. Some retailers are still on that, but pricing seems to be less important. It's really more about, well, what's happening next? Uh, supply chain issues are massive. So we're seeing large retailers just expect more and demand more in terms of forecast accuracy. And then just having more data to back that up, that they can actually deliver the quantities that are being negotiated. Because you know the last thing you want is an out of stock right now. It's just you know, consumers yeah, they're not in stores as often. So yeah, so you've mentioned a few things that are all data dependent, but are really different sets of data, like mm -hmm. a new perspective on the consumers. So I have some data on consumers being able to have better insight and predictability around my inventory. So that's another set of data, being able to understand and know, and also input what's important to the buyers and those in charge of merchandising. How are, especially in the small, mid-size CPG companies, 
and maybe even at enterprise level size companies, where are they getting this data and how are they consolidating it into something that then can be translated into a story? Uh, different approaches for different types of companies. So I'll tell you about the data first. So a typical data set, first to know what is selling, you have to know what is selling. There's two ways to get that data, actually three. One is uh, you have your own data from your own warehouses, right? You know what, what goes out to either distributors or directly to stores. So that's internal data on what you sold out. Then there's other data that comes from either the retailer. So Walmart has their own data set, Kroger, uh, you know, Wegmans, Whole Foods, certain, there's about 10 retailers that have these data sets that they give or sell, depends, to the brands themselves. So then, now you can get what they call POS data, point of sale data, what was sold in stores. That data set from the retailers is typically somewhat limited. You get dollars, units, pricing, number of stores that you're in, that's about it. Sometimes you get a velocity metric like units per store per week, something like that. Um, so that's limited, but you get it. It can be as, as frequent as daily data down to the store level. Uh, but you don't usually see what your competitors are selling. Uh, the only way to get that is to buy data through a, a third party, a syndicator, a company like Nielsen. So Nielsen, and they have a couple of other competitors, you can get data from like a Nielsen and they'll sell you everything sold in the category across as many retailers as they have access to. And this could be hundreds and hundreds of retailers. And you can get that weekly. So weekly performance of you and all other 5,000 items that are sold in your category. And with that, you get hundreds of measures, whether it's on sale, what kind of sale, attributes around whether it's organic, is it in plastic, is it GM, whatever, all sorts of attributes that, that matter to that category. So that's performance. That is a ton of data to mine just if it was those three data sources. And then you have demographic information and panel data. So that's usually coming from two sources in, in, in CPG. One is like a, a Nielsen, Nielsen also has that. So they have, I'm not sure, I think it's like 100,000 or so, a couple hundred thousand folks uh, out in the country who, who scan everything they buy. And they basically have a, a demographic sample of the country, a slice of it. And from that, they forecast out what you know, certain demographic groups and folks are gonna buy or buying and what else they bought when they bought your product. So that's one way to go. And then there are other companies like Numerator, that's a more of like a, a newer tech company who they used apps to gamify the scanning of receipts. So consumers then go and scan a receipt. Uh, and then from that, they gather what they purchased and they get some demographic information. So that's a little different. But, but it's you know similar information. So that's how companies usually get demographic information. There's also other types of analyses called spectra and other things where it's demographic profiles, but those are paneled. So that's one cluster of data. E-commerce data is another one. Uh, that's gonna come directly from Amazon or third parties that aggregate Amazon data and walmart.com. There's also Shopify data. Those data sources, right? All the ones I mentioned are things that my company can aggregate and bring together into a single database that, that helps make sense of it. There are other data sets that we don't really touch that are also out there. And that's more around in internal data around, you know, like your supply chain, you know, data, which, which we don't touch, but that's also important. Some retailers care about that, as I mentioned, and there's probably another five or six, but yeah. Well, I think this is a healthy list. And I was just thinking in my head, like who is consolidating all this data and making sense of it. And that really is the purpose and the role of yeah. Bedrock Analytics Platform. Can you tell me 
a little bit, what are the big opportunities in 2022? Because I think that's also a really good lens to kind of help CPG uh, manufacturers understand what data to focus on to best tackle these opportunities. In terms of data, so big opportunities and also data, if, if you're gonna be buying data for the first time, um, find out what, where you've done well and buy those data sets. So if, if you're doing really well at Walmart or Whole Foods, right, they're very different. Make sure that you buy access to that data and get all your competitors because you wanna use that as a use case, right? Think of it like a white paper of like, here's where we were. And when we came onto the shelf, look how we all played well together and we ended up becoming the number two brand in the country, right? You need to show that to Publix and everyone else because they'll say, okay, that might, maybe that'll happen here too. So that's a really an effective and I would say fairly cost-effective way to do that. So I know there've been a lot of challenges in 2020 and 2021. Are there any bright spots or opportunities for small and medium manufacturers to take more of that shelf space? And this is the age of disruption. I think what was known to be true before is now being challenged across the board, right? So it's a good time to redefine categories. We're seeing a lot of small companies uh, that, you know, a couple of years ago, and there's, it's not that they're larger. It's just that I think everyone, voices have been equalized a little more. As long as you can bring what the retailers want, which are insights, you know, good products that sell well, you have a higher likelihood of being, you know, having a place at the table. You just have to deliver. I think that's a good way to go. Just kind of provide them with the basics. People are looking for, you know, retailers are really looking for a variety. As long as you have that story around who the, what the consumer wants, you have a pretty good track record, at least a couple of, of examples, you have a pretty good shot. Um, what other companies are doing, by the way, around all this data, because I, I mentioned is um, some of the larger companies, like the largest in the world are, are typically, they're moving towards what they call data lakes. So data lakes are massive databases where all this data flows into. So massive, massive databases, terabytes of data, right? That's, that's coming in. Uh, the issue with it, and that's fine, right? Cause they're storing it. They already have an advantage because at least it's in one place. The issue becomes then those companies now have to develop fairly large or sophisticated IT departments, you know, tech teams to now figure out, well, how does this data make sense now that we have it in a single place? So now what do we do with it? So they end up sitting with like massive data storage costs. And then now they have to hire more technical people <laughs> to just pull it out of that single database. And then you still end up with salespeople that are like, well, what do I do with these data sets, right? So you end up having to hire more analysts to make sense of it. What we try to do is basically like, Larry, what if you avoided that entire process and let us bring it in? Because what we're doing is saying, well, we were all ex-CPG people at our company. Forget about everything you could do with it. We actually don't care about that. What if we could help you sell more product? Mm -hmm. And that's it. Like we just focus on salespeople with the data and the stories that they're trying to tell them. Well, how can we automate that? Unfortunately, we say no to a lot of folks because it's, we don't do everything that they want to do because that's not our role in the world. But we can help a, a brand sell more products by using data because we know those stories, you know, and we can help them tell them over and over again, find little angles in the data. I love that approach. It reminds me whenever we're developing a new solution or technical solution or software, a client will ask, is such and such possible? I was like, well, yeah. I mean, literally anything is possible. Mm -hmm. But the approach you're taking is first, let's start with what's really important to the shopper and the buyers. What do they need to see? What is going to prove out that our product meets those requirements? And that makes the data you need 
and the data you need to analyze much, much smaller than all the data that is possible to collect. So I really, really love that. And I know one thing uh, when we've worked together in the past and I've seen Bedrock Analytics is it's always focused on the presentation and the story, so which is perfect because people need to be able to have the data and the stories presented in a format that is accessible to them, that they're used to, that's easy to compare to people, other companies are evaluating. But tell me a little bit about when you layer on your new platform, Bedrock Insights, how is that impacting uh, the output of what Bedrock Analytics has always done? Yeah, it's been a pretty radical shift, actually. So historically, what we built, Bedrock Analytics and the product itself is called Core. So it's imagine that it's a, a layer of visualizations and, and a little bit of context around telling stories, right? So data comes in from all those places that I talked about. And then our software, our core software, looks at the data and then organizes it into the charts, visualizations that you probably need to, need to put together to pitch to a retail buyer. You push a couple buttons and you get a deck in your template. If you're Coke, it'll look, it'll be red, Coke, and has all your logos and colors and a source at the bottom, it says Nielsen. So you have a, a nice deck ready to go. And then you can just change the market. Let's say you're pitching now to Publix, you just you know choose Publix and it automatically changes all the data, you get a new deck. That's been what we've been doing for, for years and it's been really effective. With Insights, we realized pretty, you know, I think as we were doing this, right, a lot of the times we'd get some customers, the, the biggest customers in the world, right, you know, think of the top five CPGs across the world, we've talked to them, right, and, and they say, this is interesting, we're already kind of doing this stuff. We have 150, we have 200 analysts, or, you know, and, and all these things, right, so we say, yeah, we get that, they're like, but this is still interesting, it could save us a lot of time, because those analysts have to be dedicated to a sales team, and, and we don't, we can never have enough analysts. We started doing a little more research into our users, right? And we found that they always felt it intimidating, even though we've organized things nicely. They think of it like the story they're trying to tell. And then they see these visualizations, these charts that they could choose. And there's a lot of anxiety between the story I want to tell, which I, I see it in my head, and these charts. So I have to pick the right chart in the right order and choose the right data to go into that chart and then hit save and then export. But what if it's wrong, right? It, it like, is that the right way or am I just simply relying on the same five slides that I always use? So with Bedrock Insights, we took a different approach and said, all right, let's start with the end. The end is a finished deck for let's say Whole Foods. And we looked, we know we interviewed uh, retail buyers across the board. We talked to our customers, you know, our brokers, you know, sales brokers, partners, and then also employees, CPG folks. We got down to what really matters for each retailer, key retailer across the country. And then we built what they typically want to see. So Costco buyers are different from Whole Foods buyers that are different from Albertsons and you know, Kroger and things like that. So now in, in Bedrock Insights, a user logs in and they can just click on Albertsons and they see a, a deck for Albertsons that's already created. It's more of a template, but it also has really interesting talking points. We use uh, deep fake bots to narrate what could be said at an Albertsons call versus what could be said at a Whole Foods call. We also say, well, typically, you know, Whole Foods likes to see 13 slides, five of those are data slides versus Costco likes to see about 22 slides. So we measure a lot of things, right? So we know on average, what is a good benchmark? Because, you know, we service about 160 categories now from dog food to 
household cleaners and you know baby food and all sorts you know every, basically almost every aisle in the store so we can see what works doesn't work and now we're trying to say well can we apply some knowledge around you know let's say what Kroger wants so that if we have a new customer that's pitching a Kroger they can click on that and they get some pretty good guidance on what Kroger might want to see um, so that's very different from having to pick your own chart now it's like let me give you a story that seems to work at Kroger and now you can see how we made it instead of giving you the ingredients. That must be huge, especially for small and mid-sized CPG companies who can't afford to have hundreds of analysts. Yeah. But what you're doing is taking sort of the data and the lens you have across all of those retailers and using that to help uh, companies exactly understand what has to be said in a pitch to get the space. Yeah. It is such a direct reflection of your journey. You know, <laughs> like, you're like, hey, not only have I done this, have I had this experience and I've seen retail around the world from multiple different viewpoints, but now you've set up a platform that actually is always evolving because you're collecting it from the pitches. So I imagine that as Whole Foods overall retail and category strategies change, will Bedrock Analytics platform and especially the new Insights platform evolve to show the new deck that would be more appropriate as their strategies change. Yeah, well, what's really exciting about this new platform is we, we built it from the ground up, right from scratch in a, in a way that is extremely flexible. So today it's curated, right? So we're taking these insights from buyers, from CPG folks, retail brokers, general industry folks to say, okay, here's, and we're applying data to kind of make sure the models work. This is like a typical deck that you wanna see, right? For Kroger versus Whole Foods, highly curated. We're looking at about six to eight months. So version two of, of Bedrock Insights, that portion will be completely automated. Mm -hmm. So think of Tesla, right? Tesla came out with cars that, you know, they have, they have some form of automation, but it's pretty limited. That, that's where we're at, where full drive, you know, self-driving mode for us is coming out in six to eight months. What that means is a user can say, I want to launch this product at Publix help me do it. And the software will look at Publix and say everything that I talked about earlier, right? Which was like, where else have you done well? Let me pull up that story. What other products look like you? Let me show how you'd play well with them. And let me show how at Publix we're missing that type of product and the opportunity gap. And then we want to deliver that all in seconds, automatic with the talking bot, the deck, the narration, and you're ready to go. That when we launch that, it will be transformative for the industry because now that means that even if you have no analysts, you'll be able to tell the stories that a hundred person team tells today. It just takes some weeks, like it used to take us at Nestle. Uh, you'll be able to do that in 10 seconds. And even if you have a hundred analysts, now the salespeople can do some of the, that lifting. And now you have a hundred people that are be dedicated to strategy, right? To really changing the category instead of building decks. Yeah, this is a huge opportunity for 2022 because there's so much happening with the uh, supply chain, issues. I mean, there is no shortage of other challenges, e-commerce changes, mergers and acquisitions that analysts can be diverted to yeah. if you're able to handle, hey, what do the buyers and merchandisers need to see? Because that, if it's, you know, again, it takes that data lake down to what's most important to sales and it does free up brain space for strategy and some problems that right now are a little harder to track and, and are changing every day. Yeah. This is a huge opportunity, especially for people who do not have the hiring power for hundreds of analysts 
I'll add something there. So you're on to something with that question, which is, you know, automation, which is what we're ushering in into CPG, right? Automation happened in on the blue collar side, which was the automation of the warehouses and the, the production facilities in many ways. Most companies have, right? Because that's how they have pretty good margins on the production of the product. Our automation is on, can we help automate telling stories, analyzing data? There are certain things that can't be automated. And that's where we're just, humans are so good at dealing with abstract information and finding little angles like, oh, I think this is happening because of X, Y, Z. They can come up with a new idea that changes the direction of the company. And that's what we find analysts and category managers really want to do, right? Which is like, I want to be the person that saves the day, that actually moves the needle. Because I, I found some nugget in the data that led me down a path that we changed directions and we did these things and we beat the competition or we changed the, whatever, right? Whatever that might be. Software struggles with those types of things because you have to define everything for it. Okay. We can define what a good story is because we can, you know, uh, hundreds of stories we can collect and automate and say, if this ever happens then do that. And then if that happens, you know, it's basically a series of logic, but then you have AI that brings in other things, but those other problems are bigger. And that's what we want to free people up to do, right? The big things that are going to actually define careers, not building a deck for Publix versus Whole Foods, even though that's important. I think we can automate that. Right. Well, I'm excited. I think this really speaks to analysts. This speaks to heads of sales and marketers, and it does give them an opportunity to address those huge problems while not ignoring sales, which I feel like last year we got really bogged down trying to balance both. Mm -hmm. um, and or just really focusing on sales and now the overemphasis on needing to get product out has led to some of the supply chain and other partnership issues. Mm -hmm. So this is just an awesome way to get the brain power in the right space and give sales teams exactly what they need to get more shelf space and, and be in line with retailers overall strategies. So awesome job, Will. Thank you so much for being our guest today. This is a great conversation. If people wanted to reach out and learn more, where can they find you? Sure. So first place, uh, go, to, go to the website, uh, bedrockanalytics.com. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Will Salcedo. I think I'm the only one, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> and, or just you know Google Bedrock and Will Salcedo, you'll find me. Thank you again for being our guest. That concludes today's episode. You can visit Tenlo.com, click on podcasts to see all of our past episodes, or just go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and download and subscribe. Until next time, which is in two weeks, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Want to dig even deeper into lead generation, content marketing, and MarTech solutions for B2B industries like manufacturing, food and beverage, building and construction, and more? Go to tenlo.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter. That's T-E-N-L-O.com. You've been listening to another episode of Leader Generation by Tenlo Radio. Be sure to subscribe on tenloradio.com.